text for today is Matthew 1:18 through 25, page 669 of the Pew Bible. If you'd like to follow along. Now this is how the birth of Jesus came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man, he did not want to expose her to public disgrace. He had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. Because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will give him the name Emmanuel, which means... God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he had no union with her until after she gave birth to a son. And he gave him the name Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Even though I get featured in countless works of art, I've been sculpted, portrayed in pageants, I pretty much get lost in the background. In fact, most of you really don't think much about me until this month of the year, when you take out your nativity sets, and as you dust off the different people, suddenly you remember that I was a part of this story. Come the month of December, everybody knows who I was, even though I've never said a single word until now. My name is Joseph, and this is my story. My family line is old and honorable, one that reaches all the way back to the throne of Israel. My ancestor was Israel's second and perhaps greatest king, the one to whom God covenanted that his house would endure on the throne forever. I'm part of that royal house. I am one of the many hundreds and thousands of sons of David. And like the rest of them, I was born in Bethlehem. The city where David was born. The city where Samuel anointed David to be Israel's next king. It's only a few miles from the capital city of Jerusalem, but Bethlehem was not a good place for me. I wasn't able to find work there. And so early on, I moved. I moved to Nazareth. Nazareth is a small town. 
<laughs> small enough that the only people who know where it is on a map or even know that it exists at all are the people who live there. Nazareth is such a backwater town that we used to joke in my day, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Trust me, it's funny if you've been there. The town is only about five and a half square miles. I'm, I'm, you literally can walk from one end of the town to the other in about an hour. But Nazareth was good for me. Life was good for me in Nazareth. I was able to find plenty of work and I was able to make a decent living. As you know, I'm a carpenter by trade. A woodworker. I build furniture, frame houses, make tools, yoke for oxen. If it involves wood, I'm your man. But being a carpenter has always been for me more than a trade. It's a part of, of who I am. I like wood. I found working with wood that you can learn a lot about life. Wood, for me, wood is honest. It's something that you can, you can handle. It's something you can see. Wood has integrity. You can measure it. You can cut it. You can saw it. You can shape it. But you have to respect the grain of the wood. If you don't, you're working against yourself. You're working against the grain. You're working against rather than with the wood. Of course, you know all about Mary. Our families arranged for us to be together when we were just kids. They thought our union would be a good, fruitful match. And we were betrothed. I think it's engaged is what you call it. Betrothed when Mary was only 15 years old. But it's important you understand, unlike what you're used to, a betrothal was more than just a promise of marriage. It was a formal commitment. One that couldn't be broken. One that only could be severed by a legal action, by a divorce. Not that I, I ever, ever thought it would come to that. Not at all during that year, that first year, as our families got to know each other again, as our fathers, as they do, negotiated a dowry. Gosh, that year. That year, I'd known her. I'd known her, like I said, since we were kids, but during that year, my commitment to Mary, it became more than just an arrangement, more than just a binding contract. I grew to love her deeply. She, she took possession of my heart. Her beauty, oh gosh, and the anticipation of, our, of the joy of our life together. I don't know, it, it, it caused me to dream. I dreamt about building a home for Mary. I dreamt about the children we would have together. I, I, I dreamt about the wonderful life we would have. I dreamt about how wonderful life would be. <sighs> Strange, isn't it? Strange how quickly our dreams can become our nightmares. How easily we can turn around and discover that our plans, our fondest plans, our greatest hopes, I've been shattered. Maybe you've had that experience. Maybe you know what that disappointment's like. 
no, I, when you're close to someone, when you're close to someone, really close, you notice things, small things, imperceptible things, things that other people wouldn't notice. And I just, I knew something was wrong with Mary. I mean, she talked to me. She talked to me, but there was a part of her that just wasn't there. She was withdrawn, and, you know, she'd look at me, but it was like she wasn't looking directly at me. It was almost like she was looking past me. I knew that something was on her mind, but at first, she said she couldn't tell me about it. I was worried. I was worried that I'd done something wrong. I was worried that maybe I had displeased her or displeased her family. And I, I pressed her harder. I begged her not to shut me out. To trust me. Talk to me. Tell me. And she finally broke down. And I was totally unprepared. I was totally unprepared for what she said. It was just three words. I am pregnant. I am pregnant. Three words, funny how three words can just change your whole life. Hearing those three words should fill a would-be father's heart with joy. But it wasn't my child. I felt like I had been kicked in the chest. We had love. We had respect. We had a future. How could this happen? How could she do this to me? That's what just kept running through my head in those first moments, those three words hanging there and those questions over and over again. And then Mary, Mary told me her story. <laughs> How an angel appeared to her. A teenage girl in a fifth-rate village and told her she was going to be the mother of Israel's promised Messiah. The Spirit of God had come upon her, Mary had told me. The Spirit of God had planted a baby in her womb. Her story left me speechless, confused, and furious all at once. What kind of story was this? What kind of story was this? Was I honestly supposed to believe something so blasphemous, so clearly against the will of our God? I mean, never, never, never in our history, never in our history has God worked like this. He's never done anything like this. Throughout our story as Israelites, barren mothers became pregnant by the Lord's grace, but not unmarried virgins. What would our family think? What were our friends going to think? What, was our, what were our neighbors going to say? You know, Nazareth... The Roman, the Roman District Administrative Center is only about four miles northwest of where we live. It's in Sephoris. And you know, Roman soldiers are frequently seen in our town. You putting this together? I can only imagine what the talk would be. 
You know, you know how people gossip. I'd be Joseph, the man who lost his wife before he even married her. Or I'd be Joseph, the man who couldn't wait for Mary to be his wife, so he took things too far because he just couldn't control himself. Either way, either way, it was shameful and it was embarrassing. You don't understand, for nothing else, if nothing else, if I had anything, I was known as a righteous man. I believed, I did, I believed that the Lord God gave Moses the law, the Torah for our people, and that the law, the Torah, was life. The Torah, it tells us how we should live for God, the things we should do, the way we should eat, the people we should associate with, and so on. And and yes, following God's law is not always easy. But... I believed that to be God's people meant that we have to do what God tells us. It's, it's, it's not about going around and pointing fingers at other people. It's not about looking down through your nose at others. I just think that if a person believes something, they should live it. All, all I could say to Mary... All I could say to Mary that day, all I could say to stifle my anger and my pain was I just wanted to do the right thing. I just wanted to obey and honor our Lord. According to the law and custom, According to the law and custom, the righteous thing to do would have been to gather the elders and publicly sever the relationship, to petition for a divorce by exposing Mary and telling everyone that I was not responsible for her pregnancy. That was the righteous thing to do. That was the law. Why was it then that as I said it out loud with her standing there, dismissing her? Why was it then when I thought about condemning her to a life-long shame? Why was it that I felt more self-righteous than I did righteous? But I, I have to be a man of integrity, don't I? I have to be a man of integrity, If I claimed that Mary's child was my own, I would be guilty of lying, and lying was a violation of the law. Worse yet, if I admitted that this was my child, I would further be dishonoring the Torah by being with a woman who was not yet my wife. Being a righteous man, I wanted to be obedient to the law. And yet, being a righteous man, I wanted to be merciful to Mary as the law requires. I wept. I wept aloud. I wept aloud as I asked, how, how can I be righteous and merciful at the same time? I wept. Mary. Mary cried as I cried that day too. But through her tears, she said something. 
said over and over again, something I've never forgotten. Softly, almost like a prayer, she just kept saying, let it be to me according to your will. Let it be to me according to your will. My heart sank as I understood that Mary was throwing herself upon my wisdom. And I didn't know what to do. But I knew this. Mary had to leave. Soon, soon she would be showing the sign of her shame and of my guilt. Soon, the judgment and scorn of the town would descend upon her. The law required that an adulteress be stoned to death. But the truth is, it wasn't often practiced in my day. And the truth is, it really didn't need to be. It didn't need to be because sometimes the most vicious, the most damning stones aren't ones the, the ones that we throw. They're the ones that we say. The cruelty of gossip. How tortured to be isolated. It can kill a person. Trust me, it can kill a person as effectively as throwing rocks. And I, I couldn't bear Mary to have to endure that. I, I couldn't. So I sent her. I sent her away. I sent her down south. I sent her about 100 miles to Hebron. She had family there. She had relatives, people who would give her support and care for her. She was able to be able to stay there until I could figure out what to do. In fact, the word was that her cousin Elizabeth was said to be pregnant in her old age after a lifetime of being barren. I heard that and I thought, that's how the Lord works. That's a miracle right there. Not this. For days, weeks, months, I faced my dilemma alone. Who was I going to talk to? I tossed and I turned at night. I, I, I couldn't sleep. Even if I believed Mary's story, I thought, how, how can God violate his own law? Why? Why? Why would God bring the gift of a child to a virgin, to an unmarried woman? The law left it up to a man to decide how to handle the divorce. I didn't have to make a public example of Mary. I could get a couple of my friends. I could get a couple of my friends, people I could trust, and give her a private bill of divorce. Of course, yes. The reason would soon be obvious. But without a complaint from me, nothing legally could be done to Mary. <laughs> but still, there was no good way out of this. There was no good way out of this. It was... Only the lesser of two evils. Divorce her publicly, divorce her quietly. I'm still divorced. We're still divorced. And how can divorce be God's will? There was no possibility for redemption here. All roads led to heartbreak for both of us. I was so angry at the Lord in that moment. I felt betrayed by him. What had being righteous gotten me? How could the law by which I had tried to live my life now become the very means that was killing 
my hope, my dreams. Still, I made my decision. One night, I made my choice. As I went to bed that night, I decided to divorce Mary quietly and privately. I'd send word to her in the morning. That was my decision. I didn't think about sleeping on it because, honestly, after days, weeks, and months, I was convinced that I had reached the best decision that was possible. Let me say that again. I had reached the best decision that I could come up with. Me. Joseph. Now, you might assume that through all of this, I mean, days, weeks, months, that I was praying to the Lord. Seeking wisdom, asking for direction, and you're right. But let's just say, I wasn't really listening for an answer. No, no. No, no, that's not true. I was sincere in my prayers. Maybe it was this. I had become so familiar with the Lord, knowing and worshiping him all of my life, that I unconsciously assumed his part in our conversations. Have you ever done that? Have you ever known someone so well that you can complete their sentences? Sometimes you're talking with them, but you're really not listening to them. You're listening to what you've come to believe, what you've come to expect them to say. We do it all the time with people. Why would our relationship with God be any different? And that's what I did. I prayed, but I answered my own prayers. It doesn't take much. It doesn't take much. It's real subtle. It, it happens. I don't know what it is, but we can encounter this God who exceeds our expectations, and it doesn't take much to suddenly confine him, worship him according to our expectations. And so, with the Lord's blessing, I made my decision that night. My decision. My mistake <laughs> was in assuming that my will and the Lord's were the same thing. That night... That night, oh, if you have never have gone for so long without sleeping, that night, my recurring nightmare was suddenly transformed into this new and unbelievable dream. After weeks of feeling lost, as all the plans that I had for my life had collapsed, after months of feeling just exhausted, trapped in this darkness, this darkness of a problem that I couldn't solve. I saw the light. I saw the light of an angel, the wondrous light of an angel. And the angel said to me the very first thing, Joseph, don't be afraid. Joseph, believe Mary. Believe Mary, believe her story, take her as your wife and receive Joseph more than you could ask for or imagine. The child she bears is from the Holy Spirit. And you will call him Jesus, for he will save his people, your people, from their sins. This is the fulfillment of what the Lord promised to your line, the house of David. These are the words that you know. But remember, this was a dream. Through the angel that night, the Lord gave me more than words. He gave me a vision of his plans for me. Our father showed me, called me to become the father 
of his one and only son. He gave me a vision of giving up my right to sire my own firstborn son, a privilege and responsibility that meant everything in my day, and a vision to adopt this child as my own into my family line, to give him my name, my property. And so I did. That's what Matthew wants you to understand when he shares a bit of my family history. That through me, Jesus is part of the family. He is the son of David. God gave me a vision that I was to adopt this child as my firstborn son so that we could all be adopted as brothers and sisters, as children of our Heavenly Father. As I awoke from sleep the next morning, those lingering memories of that dream still fresh in my mind, I so desperately wanted to talk to Mary. I wanted to apologize for doubting her. I wanted to share my vision with her as she had shared hers with me. And it was in that excitement, it was in that moment that I realized, <laughs> I realized, I realized that that day, so long ago now, that day when Mary was crying, she wasn't, as she just kept repeating those words, she wasn't throwing herself on my wisdom. She was seeking after the Lord. In the midst of my anger, in the midst of my frustration, in the midst of my despair, she was following the leading of the Holy Spirit. And now it was my opportunity to join her by doing the same. The Lord had given me a vision, but I had to choose to make it my dream. When I was younger, when I was younger, I once thought that if I ever saw an angel like my ancestor Jacob, I'd never have any doubts. Well, I had seen an angel. It was vivid and real. And this particular angel had been sent just for me. But I still had lots of questions. I still had lots of questions. In my exhaustion, did I make this all up? In my worry, being so preoccupied with the same problem over and over again, was I just telling myself what I wanted to hear, seeing what I wanted to see? I mean, if we, come on, dreams like that, they come to prophets, not woodworkers. Now, some of you here, may here this morning may not be a carpenter, but you're more like me than you realize. You live like I do in a world of cause and effect, and therefore, like me, some of you need things to be concrete. You believe your doubts, and you doubt your beliefs. I get it. I've been there. All I can tell you is that there is only one thing at the end of your questions. There's only one road that takes us beyond the dead end of our doubts, and that's faith. Faith. When you reach the end of human wisdom, when you are confronted with the unexpected, with the seemingly impossible, you have to trust. God can and God will show us many things, but seeing is not believing. It's living into the dreams that the Lord gives us. It's living into the dreams that the Lord gives us. That's faith.
faith is taking that first step and then another and then another and then another. As I thought about the road ahead for us, cut off from our family probably, shunned by our friends and neighbors, definitely, mocked by people we don't even know, strangers, certainly, I held on. I held on to faith. I held on to the Lord's promise of making a way through the wilderness. I held on to faith, to this angelic vision of the Messiah, the Savior, my yet unborn son. And as I got dressed and headed down to Hebron to bring the woman who would be my bride, Mary, home, I found courage. I found wisdom in her faith and made it my own. Hundred miles as I went down to Hebron, I spoke these words over and over again. Let it be to me according to your will. Let it be to me according to your will. Mary was nearly four months pregnant when I took her back to Nazareth. And as soon as possible, we were married. You, of course, know the rest of the story, or at least the details that Matthew and Luke have given you. You knew all about Caesar's decree concerning the census that took us from Nazareth to Bethlehem, but have you ever really thought what it was like traveling 90 miles on foot, leading a donkey, carrying a wife who's nine months pregnant? We're talking about a four to six day journey here through the wilderness with the constant threat of robbers and wild animals. Most people to be saved traveled in groups, but not us. Not many people wanted our company. Most people walked on the other side of the road when they saw us coming. And as you know, arriving in Bethlehem wasn't much different from traveling alone on the road to get there. There was no room for us anywhere, even in my hometown, even among my relatives. No one would open their doors to us. We finally found some shelter downstairs in the animal stable of a neighbor's house. Stranger's home took pity on us. And together, we managed to deliver a baby, a son, just as the angel had told us. And just as the angel had told us, we named him Jesus. I loved him instantly, as all parents do the first time they see their children come into the world but to be honest, he didn't seem like our promised Messiah. He didn't seem like the savior of the world. I don't, know, I don't know. I don't know what I expected when I looked down in the manger, but all I saw was a baby. Thankfully, faith brought into focus what I could not see about my son, about Jesus. First, as you know, there were the shepherds. Oh, there were the shepherds. They... they came, sent by angels, coincidence? Sent by angels, excitedly telling us about what happened to them on the fields, as at the same time they bowed low in worship before our child. And then only a few days later, there was the old man named Simeon and the prophetess named Anna. We had gone to Jerusalem. Jesus was getting circumcised. Mary was 
going through the rite of purification. And both of them, they came up to us, this old man and this prophetess, and they marveled over our son and spoke words, powerful things about his life and destiny. Much later, after we settled down in Bethlehem, strangest knock I've ever had on my door, astrologers from Persia, dressed so differently, asked to come in, and they come in with gifts, gold, gold, frankincense, myrrh, gifts fit for a king, and they lay each of them at the feet of my toddler, my son, and pay him homage. You have no idea, by the way, how valuable those gifts were when I had another dream. Another dream that was an attempt to stop a nightmare, the nightmare of King Herod's rampage. You have no idea how those gifts that I thought were so lavish, so unnecessary, so extravagant, how valuable they became when almost overnight we had to travel 200 miles down south and became refugees in Egypt. Those gifts that I thought were nothing, not necessary, saved our life. Those gifts from the Magi helped us to start over in a foreign country while we waited for a sign that we could return home. And then there was that time when we lost him. Oh, gosh. We'd gone to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover as we always did, and it was wonderful. It was, it was fantastic. We packed up and we were heading home and we were on our way back home. And I don't know, a day, a day in, all of a sudden somebody says, where's Jesus? What do you mean, where's Jesus? Where's Jesus? Where's my son? Where's my son? You, if you've been a parent, when you don't know where your child is, you panic. And if you're a parent, you know when you don't know where your child is, you go back to where you were. And we doubled back and we headed back to Jerusalem. And I, all kinds of thoughts running through my mind. But the one thought that didn't run through my mind was the picture that I saw when we got to Jerusalem. At the temple. On the stairs. Twelve years old. My boy. Not listening talking and debating with the teachers and elders of the law. My son. My son. It was in that moment. And I think I can speak for Mary on this. We pondered a lot, but it was in that moment that everything came into focus for us. When we clearly saw what others had perceived all along, that our son was not only filled with wisdom, but that he spoke with authority that the grace of God was upon him in a very special way. People often ask me, what was it like to be the father of the Messiah? And I always give them the same answer. I didn't raise the Messiah. I raised a boy. A boy who used to skin his knees on the streets of Nazareth. A boy who I would hold in my lap and tell stories until he fell asleep. I didn't teach Jesus how to be the savior of the world. I taught him how to be a carpenter. I taught him how to build things with his hands. I taught him how to measure twice so that you only cut once. 
And I, of course, always knew that he'd be more than a carpenter. I just never imagined. I never imagined how it would all intersect on that day. That day that my son became the building project. When he was nailed to a cross. At the end of it all, here's what I learned. Our vision for our lives, our hopes and dreams at this time of year, at Christmas, they aren't too big. They're not big enough. On my own, I came up with the best decision that I could make. And it always felt like the lesser of two evils. It always ended in divorce. It always ended in separation and death. But when I allowed my vision to get bigger, I realized my dreams were too small. That the Lord had something greater in store for me, something greater than I could ever ask for or imagine. Not divorce, but birth. Not separation, but God with us. Not death, but life. Our celebration of all this, of Christmas, it isn't big enough unless we are celebrating that God's dream for our lives is more than we could ever ask for or imagine. And so you see, all of this, Christmas, life itself, isn't about getting what we want. We run around. We make lists in our head and on paper uh, about what we want from God. We make big plans and map out our lives in such detail that we rarely leave room for God to actually work in our lives. And when the unexpected comes, when our plans, our desires get detoured, when what we want isn't under the Christmas tree when what we want isn't unfolding in our lives, we all experience disappointment. But in our worry, in our fear, maybe like me, even in our humiliation, as we struggle with what to do next, maybe what we need to realize is that we're failing to see that the Lord doesn't. As we struggle with what to do next, we need to understand the Lord doesn't. God has a plan. Our God has a plan for this world, for each one of us, for every Christmas, for every day of our lives. And so Christmas, like life, isn't about getting what we want. It's about receiving what we need. I wanted to get married. I wanted to raise a family. I wanted to be a carpenter. That was my life. A steady job, a good wife, and a couple of kids. That's what I wanted. But I needed more than that. We all do. I needed to truly learn how to pray and live not based on the limits of my wisdom, but through faith, through dependence upon this God whom I knew, but I hadn't experienced. I needed a savior. Not a Messiah who would make all my troubles go away with a wave of his hand. I needed a master craftsman. I needed my son, Jesus, to teach me how to really build things. As a carpenter, I've never failed to appreciate the quality of his work. That day, that day as he willingly grabbed a perfectly good piece of wood 
as he shaped something intended for evil into the instrument of my redemption and yours. I learned, we all did, what building for the kingdom looks like. I needed to be a part of that building project. And so do you. My name is Joseph. And what I'm asking you this morning is what are your dreams this Christmas? What are your dreams for your life? Are they as big as my son's dreams for you? What are you worrying about? Are you worrying about getting what you want for Christmas? Are you worrying about getting what you want for your life? Or as the heavens open up and as my son Jesus is born anew in your life, are you ready to receive not what you want, but what you need? And what you need is more than what you want. It's more than you could ever ask for or imagine. Take heart as you gather around your nativity scenes. Make sure to put me in the right place. Make sure to remember my story. Make sure to remember that my story is really a part of his story. And remember and celebrate together that this story, our story, begins as it ends. Hear the words of my son as he said to all of us, remember, I am with you always to the very end of the age. From the beginning to the end, it is Emmanuel, God with us now and forever. Amen? Amen. Amen.